Let's bow and pray once more as we prepare to hear God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather as your people in the name of your son Jesus as those who've been saved by grace. We thank you for the privilege you've given us in reflecting this mercy and grace. Lord, we pray this morning that you would take the the seed of your word and plant it deep within all of us that are here this morning. If there are any that are here that don't know you this morning, Lord, may they hear the good news of Jesus and see the beauty of Christ and the the need to be forgiven of sins and, and trust in Jesus today. And for those who've already, by grace, put their faith in Jesus, we pray we'd be strengthened this morning. Lord, help us to, to be those who think biblically. Lord, help us to be those who are filled with a spirit of boldness, to joyfully proclaim the truth of your word and seek to joyfully obey you. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach your word. I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully this morning. Lord, keep me from saying anything that would be unhelpful and help me to say what is helpful in ways that are clear and that build up this church and that exalt your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, this week in the life of our church, we had a birth and we had a death. So we celebrated on on Tuesday, members of our church welcoming a little baby boy into their family. And then on Thursday, we gathered in this room for a funeral, the, the death of a sister of one of our members, Lisa Britton. There was a moment of, of joy and receiving news of the gift of life that has arrived. I love receiving those texts that a baby's been born in the life of our church. And then the hard news, the, the sorrow and the pain of receiving a, a text that, that someone has lost a loved one. That moment of joy, that moment of sorrow, they both reflect the sanctity of human life. The sanctity of human life from the womb to the tomb. That all life is created by God. All human life precious in His sight. And today we have the joy as a church to recognize sanctity of human life Sunday. We stand with thousands of other churches across our country, including our North Carolina Baptist churches here in the state of North Carolina, to take a stand, to stand on the the Word of God alone, and for us to consider what God's Word has to say about the sanctity of human life. Well, what is the sanctity of, of human life? Sanctity may not be a word that you use in your everyday vocabulary. What does that mean? Well, the sanctity of human life simply means all of human life is sacred. And this sacredness is not a reflection of the goodness of humanity, because we're sinful. We've sinned against God and broken His commandments. All of us have gone astray, each to our our own way, and rejected God's loving, fatherly authority over us. So the sanctity of human life doesn't speak to us to say that we're, we're really good people. Rather, the sanctity of human life speaks to the origin of humanity. Because we're all created, every single human being created in the image of God. God has created us. Every person here this morning, you are His idea. You are not a mistake. God has a purpose to reflect His glory in your life. And if you haven't trusted in Christ this morning, the only way you can truly bring Him glory is to repent of your sin against Him and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. 
But the sanctity of human life speaks to this biblical truth, which we'll look at this morning, that every human life is created by God and therefore belongs to Him. So when we speak of this sanctity of human life, we recognize that all human life, from the womb to the tomb, created by God and therefore is worthy to be treated with honor and with dignity and with respect. Yet on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we recognize that there is a certain group of human beings that is not being given this honor and dignity and respect. That there's a failure in our laws and legal system to protect their precious lives, including here in the state of North Carolina. Laws that make it legal actually to kill this group of people. And that's the lives of babies in the mother's womb, pre-born babies. And so today, churches across our land together with one voice speak up for the lives of these precious little innocent ones. Now, we recognize this Sunday today because this past weekend, it marked the 51st anniversary of the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, a decision back then that held that women in America have the fundamental and constitutional right to have an abortion. It was a decision that led to 63-plus million babies, 63-plus million babies not being given a chance to be born, a massive taking, deliberate and intentional taking of human life in the womb. To give you an idea, 63 million, that's almost 19% of the current population of the United States of America. 63 million is six times the population of the state we live in here in North Carolina. Now, thankfully, in June of 22, the Supreme Court issued its opinion of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization overturning Roe versus Wade, clearly stating we hold that Roe must be overruled. That's a decision we thank the Lord for here. We were happy to hear. We had been praying for that and working to that end. And it's right that we would rejoice in that decision. And so you may wonder, well, why keep preaching these types of sermons and having these Sundays if we're now presently living in a post-Roe America? It's a good question. I think while we can be and should be thankful with what happened with the Dobbs decision, this issue of protecting the lives of the preborn is far from over. Now is not the time to go silent. It's not the time to grow unaware or even apathetic. This continues to be a federal issue, a state issue, and it's also a local issue here to our local church. And I mean local here in our specific neighborhood, where I'm told that one of the busiest abortion clinics in the southeast is just a block, two blocks down, the next major intersection down on Wendover, the edge of our neighborhood. This is an issue that matters greatly to us as a church because we understand this matters greatly to God. He is the giver of life. He's created all of our lives, and He's created the life of every pre-born baby in the womb. Let me be clear, this sermon is, is different from what we typically do here. Most of what we do here is just open up a book of the Bible and go from start to finish. So we just did that in Galatians. Lord really, next week, pick back up on the gospel of Luke. This is a topical sermon, and we're doing this to partner with other churches and to talk about a very important issue. So we're going to spend some time looking this morning at what God has said in His Word about the preborn, and then we'll close thinking about how we should respond 
as Christians. Now, I imagine in a crowd this size, there may be someone here who has had an abortion or been party to one. Let me be very clear. I am not here to hammer you. I'm not here this morning to hammer you. As a church, we certainly want to be clear that abortion is sinful. We want to be clear that it violates God's commandments, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. It is a sin. We are clear on that. We're also clear on the gospel. It is not an unforgivable sin. We have good news to preach. Our God is gracious, and He is merciful. And through Jesus Christ, His Son, He forgives anyone who would turn to Him. And sometimes you come to church, and you may look around and think, these people have it all together. They're not like me. They figured it all out. That couldn't be further from the truth. And in serving one of the pastors here, some of you have shared with me your testimony. You've entrusted to me your testimonies. And you've shared that in the past you had an abortion. And that God forgave you for that. That you repented of your sin. We don't want to avoid hard issues here. Because hard issues, you know what they take us? They take us to the cross. Where Christ paid for every failing. This is a Christian sermon. We have good news to preach this morning. Jesus went to the cross to pay for sin. We meet on Sunday mornings because he got up from the dead on the third day. And because he got up, he's reigning this morning, and he is having a ministry and is thrown from heaven this morning of forgiving sins. He's in the business of redeeming sinners, forgiving sins. So this issue is absolutely tied to God's word and to the gospel of Jesus Christ where there is forgiveness of sins. And for any here this morning who've already repented of this sin, may you walk in the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus Christ, the one who's taken your, his, your shame upon himself willingly by paying for your sin by his very blood. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I imagine you very well might disagree with what I say. Maybe what I say upsets you. I don't get up here to offend people, but I do get up here with a responsibility to not preach my own opinions, but to preach the truth of the Word of God. I would ask you, you're at a Christian church this morning, you should expect we're going to preach the Bible. I would ask you to keep an open mind. Consider, maybe this is the first time you've heard what God's Word has to say, and I would be happy to talk with you. I stand down here afterwards, any of our pastors afterwards, any of our members would be happy to talk with you more about what we hear this morning. Well, as we look here this morning, it's a topical sermon. Get your Bibles ready. If you want to take a copy of the Bible right in front of you, you can take that Bible and get it ready. You certainly can write down these passages because what I'm going to do is help us build a foundation this morning. So the outline for this morning, two foundations and three conclusions. I want to give us two biblical foundations to think about preborn personhood. Two biblical foundations for preborn personhood. The first foundation is this, if you're taking notes, all human beings bear the image of God. All human beings bear the image of God. That's the first foundation. You can turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. If you want to use that pew Bible, take it. Page 1 in the Bible. First page there in the Bible. It's an important truth to consider the image of God. To be human, we see here, by definition, is to bear the image of God. Genesis 1, 26-27, let me read for us. Then God said, let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God's pattern is that human life, male and female, are image bearers of God, created in his image and in his likeness. And those words, likeness and image, they reinforce one another to make the same point, that God blessed human life in a way that is different from everything else that he created. We had some amazing sunsets this week. I saw them all over social media. Beautiful sunsets that display God's creation, displays his beauty, his glory. Someone created the sun. Someone created you to be able to look at those sunsets and delight and rejoice in the beauty. And they reflect the creator. And as beautiful as creation is, the most beautiful part of creation, human beings. God has blessed humanity in a way that's different from all the other ways that he blessed the rest of creation. He put his stamp on us in a way that stands out, even from beautiful sunsets. Being made in the image of God means that we have the capacity to worship God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength, that we have the capacity to live for His glory in a way that's different from the rest of creation. Two words help me think about what the image of God points to, represent and reflect. In the image of God, we represent God, and we reflect God's glory in a way that's different from all of creation. Human beings image God as his representatives here on earth for his glory. And as humanity, we are made to reflect God and his glory in a very special way. So through creating mankind, God made himself visible. Not an exact representation of God, but he made us as a reflection to mirror him. I've shared this before, but I've heard this analogy given to to illustrate this point. One author put it like this, if you create an image, if you make a sculpture of someone, you do it to display something about that someone. You put it in the square in the middle of town and you want people to look at it, notice it, think about that person to think something about them, that they were noble or strong or wise or courageous or or something. Now, when I lived in the nation's capital, there were these types of statues all over the place, not just there on the National Mall, but in all of our parks. Every day on the way to work, I walked through a park, Stanton Park, and there was a statue there in the middle of the park, an old statue. It was of Nathaniel Green, that Greensboro, North Carolina was named after, a general in the American Revolution. He was there, right there, and my wife and I had actually just moved from Greensboro to Washington, D.C. It was just a kind reminder of the Lord's providence and bringing us there. But every day I'd walk through there, and I'd walk past this statue of Nathaniel Green. Just down the road, the other park was Lincoln Park. And you had a statue there honoring the Emancipation Proclamation, a statue there of Abraham Lincoln, there in Lincoln Park. Those, those statues there to point to a certain someone and what they did. Well, this author, he put it like this. I love this analogy. What would it mean if you created 7.8 billion statues of yourself? It's the world population. 7.8 billion statues of yourself and put them all over the world. It would mean you would want people to notice you. God created us in his image so that we would display or reflect or communicate who he is 
how great he is and what he is like. Every single human being like a statue for the honor and glory of God to draw attention to him. In other words, the crowning glory of people is in relation to our being made as image bearers of the one true God. And if you get that concept, that theological concept should guide us in every relationship. If you remember that every person is created in the image of God, that helps us understand every person you come into contact with today, tomorrow, they matter. They're a soul. They're one created in the image of of God, and it will change the way you think about every person. It will change the way you think about that person who was driving crazy on the Charlotte streets, who just cut you off. And rather than getting angry with them and being nasty with them, you can extend kindness to them. The person at work who belittles you or doesn't treat you well, there's reason for us not to return insult for insult, but rather to show kindness and grace and mercy. It'll change your parenting. It'll change your neighboring. It'll change your evangelism and the way you think about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with every person. It will change the way you think about racism and how terrible that is. It will change the way you think about pornography and what a terrible evil that is. It will change the way you think about the preborn in the womb and how horrific it is to intentionally and deliberately kill them. We must have that foundation. All human beings bear the image of God. It points us to a second foundation. The preborn are persons in the image of God. Foundation number two, the preborn are persons in the image of God. Well, what should you think about abortion? Well, that's an important question, but I don't think that's the first question. Before you can answer that question, you must ask another question. What is in the womb? That's going to answer what you should think about abortion. So the starting case point for a case against abortion begins with the personhood of a preborn child. And we clearly see in the pages of the Bible the personhood of the preborn. Now, a preborn baby does not become a person once they're born. Rather, they are a person in the womb before they are born. The preborn does not become a person after the first trimester. Rather, they are a person in the womb from the moment of conception. In the womb, a person with a human body is being shaped and fashioned by our Creator God, the giver of life. So let's spend some time looking at several different passages. I'm happy for you to turn to these or you can just write these down. What I want to do is build a foundation biblically, topically. How would we put together this theology that the preborn are persons in the image of God? The first passage I want to point you to is Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 23. Genesis 25, verses 21 through 23. If you want to turn there, that's page 19 on your Bible, page 19 in your Bible. We see here Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was pregnant with twins, Isaac and Esau. And notice here in this passage, before they were born, while they were in their mother's womb, they are regarded by God as children. Indeed, God sees nations coming from these preborn children. Verse 21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. In this passage, what was in Rebekah's womb? Two preborn children. They're referred to as children. Even before they're born, they're regarded as two distinct persons. So there's actually three people here, Rebecca, and then we've got two children, all of them referred to distinctly. And God looks at these two children in her womb and considers the nations that will come from these two children. Next passage, we're building foundation here, Job chapter 10. You can write this down, Job 10, verses 8 through 12. That's on page 423 in your pew Bible, Job 10, 8 through 12. Job describes his conception in the womb that he was made by the hands of God. Job 10, starting in verse 8, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you've destroyed me altogether. Remember that you've made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Clearly in Job, the womb is a place of life. Job 31, 15. Let me read that for you. Later on in the book of Job, chapter 31, verse 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb. This is why Christians understand that the the womb, it's a place where God is at work shaping and fashioning and forming a person. And therefore, we understand the womb is a place of creation and is not to be a place of destruction. It's a place where life is given, not to be a place where someone goes and intentionally takes life. A similar picture and similar words used by David that we heard read this morning in Psalm 139. You can write that down. It's what we heard read already. Psalm 139, particularly verses 13 through 16. What is in the womb? David writes in that psalm, it was me. It wasn't someone different. It was him back in the womb. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He's marveling at God's intimate involvement in creating him in his mother's womb. And he presents himself back then as a a person that was growing in his mother's womb. The same David who, who wrote the psalm was the David back in the womb. And he says, God knew me there in the womb. God knew me. That's a relational term. God related to me and knew me before I came out of my mother's womb. David also demonstrates this thinking in Psalm 51.5. You can write that down. Lord willing, tonight, 5.30 p.m., we'll come back. We'll hear some teaching from Psalm 51 from Joel Engstrom. Psalm 51.5 we'll look at later tonight. But David says in that psalm that not only was he a sinner at, at birth, but even before birth. Psalm 51.5, in sin did my mother conceive me. The problem of sin, there with him at the very beginning of his life, which he says is conception. He was sinful from the very beginning of his existence in the womb. And just last month, as we began our sermon series, 
In the Gospel of Luke, which we plan to return to, Lord willing, next Sunday, we saw in chapter 1 of Luke two babies being conceived, John the Baptist and Jesus, there in Luke chapter 1. And Luke 1, which is on page 855 in your pew Bible, Luke 1, page 855, Luke describes what is in the womb as a baby. I, I want to point out in Old Testament and New Testament, consistent in this, one testimony about the personhood of the preborn. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, we've looked at this before, when the angel Gabriel declared that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Think about this. The Holy Spirit fills people. John the Baptist, so this is not the, the normal way the Holy Spirit fills people. For, for most of you here this morning, the Holy Spirit filled you at the moment of conversion when you first repented and believed in Jesus. But we see here the Holy Spirit filling a preborn baby. It's important to recognize the Holy Spirit does not dwell in lifeless forms of tissue. The Holy Spirit dwells in people. John the Baptist, from the moment of conception, filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb. Later on in Luke 1, Luke two times describes what is in the womb as a baby. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. What was in her womb? A baby was in her womb. It didn't become a baby after, once delivered out of the womb, baby in her womb leaped. Again in verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The baby is what was in the womb. And we've noted this. It's believed that Luke was a physician. Dr. Luke wrote down very specific details. What was in the baby? What was in the womb, rather? A baby. This Greek word for baby that Luke used, it's used in the next chapter, Luke chapter 2, of baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, telling us the baby in the womb is no less of a baby than the baby that was laid in the manger. Now, the eternal Son of God became human at the point of conception in the womb. In other words, the incarnation began in the womb. That's what Luke very plainly and clearly lays out here. These are just a few verses. We, we could go through even more verses about the prophet Jeremiah. There's a whole theology here we can put together where we'd understand the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that the preborn are persons. They're not merely bodies awaiting personhood. There's a body there because they are persons from the moment of conception. Just because the preborn are not mature human beings, that doesn't mean they are not human beings. You and I, all of us here this morning, we didn't come from embryos. We once were embryos. That's who we were. Human beings are what is present there in the womb. Now, author Scott Klusendorf, he presents what is known as the sled argument. It's very helpful to, to think through uh, the difference between a baby outside of the womb and a baby in the womb. He uses this sled argument, you can write this down if you're taking notes, to show there are only four differences between what's in the womb and a newborn baby or someone outside of the womb. Sled, first, size. Second, level of development. E is for environment. 
And D is for degree of dependency. I'll go back through those if you're wondering what those are. First difference, size. A baby outside of the womb, obviously larger in size than a baby in the womb. But size doesn't determine human life. I'm six foot four. Some of you are shorter than that, right? We're different sizes. It's how God created us. And even when we're six foot four as a fully grown adult, at one point I wasn't six foot four. I was a tiny little baby. I was still a human life being developed and growing and maturing. So we don't do that with a three-month-old baby or a three-year-old toddler. We understand that's a human being regardless of its size. The second difference is the level of development. But the level of development doesn't determine human life. We just looked at Psalm 139, and we see here that, that David, his intellectual development to write a beautiful psalm like that in chapter 139, didn't make him more of a person then than he was back in the womb. He was a person in both places with different levels of development. The third difference of environment, we've looked very plainly, the environment. Uh, d- does a, a fetus in the womb become a life after being delivered through the birth canal, does that then make that little one a person? Well, no. They're a person from the moment of conception. Your environment does not determine if you are a person. And the fourth difference between what's in the womb, what's outside of the womb, is the degree of dependency. Some will wrongly say the degree of dependency determines what a life truly is. Well, that's not true. I hope you don't believe that. And if you do, I hope you reconsider this. You don't cease to be a human being when you're in the ICU on a ventilator. You're still a human being, even though you're dependent on that ventilator to cause your lungs to do what it has failed to do and properly receiving oxygen to keep you alive. A a newborn baby is still dependent on mom and dad. Five and six-year-olds still dependent on mom and dad. Teenagers still depend on mom and dad more than you'd like to admit. That doesn't determine your humanity. Just because a little baby is totally helpless to provide for themselves, we don't consider them to to not be human. Those who suffer paralysis and are dependent on others to care for them, are we ready to say they're not human and they don't deserve to live? No. Your degree of dependency doesn't determine your humanity. God is clear in His Word that all of human life, whether inside the womb or outside, is made in the image of God. And just because a person is less formed or even deformed does not mean they are less of a person. So the question is not how old or how big or how smart and developed the preborn are, but rather who are they? The testimony of Scripture is clear. They're human beings created in the image of God, the moment of conception is the moment of creation. Well, these two biblical foundations, all human beings bear the image of God, and the preborn are persons in the image of God, point us to three conclusions that I want us to consider this morning. The first conclusion a preborn baby is a different person from the mother. We need to get this right. A preborn person, baby rather, is a different person from the mother. Maybe you've heard the argument, I will decide what to do with my body. That's not, it's not a consistent argument either, because there's lots of things that laws tell you you can't do with your, with your body. But we also have to be clear here that the baby is not a body part of the mother. That's another life 
present in the womb of the mother, which is a glorious and beautiful thing. That there's another human being inside the womb of the mother. That's why we celebrate at gender reveal parties, right? Because this is a little baby boy or a little baby girl there in the womb. That's exciting. It's something that we're excited and can't wait to see them finally revealed and delivered to their parents. That preborn baby, it's the body of another human being. The mother doesn't own the child. I don't own my children. Fortunately, I don't own them. But we had a parenting conference this weekend. It was about parenting them and caring for them and providing them. One human being does not own another human being. And when we've gotten that wrong in this country, it's led to some terrible circumstances. You do not own other people. You have a relationship with them, and it's right for parents to care for and protect and provide. That's the, indeed the God-given instinct and the commands that parents have towards their children. That starts, that kind of prayer, uh, preparation and con- uh, care, it happens at the moment of conception. One place I want you to write down, Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. We read of a situation there of a pregnant woman who was struck when standing near a fight between some men and the baby in her womb was injured. So this is in Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. And notice here, it's another place that God considers both the pregnant woman and her preborn child to both be victims of the crime that happened there. God's Word speaks of two lives being affected. Exodus 21, 22 through 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What came out of this pregnant woman when she was violently struck? A child. That's what the passage says. God himself, in this passage referring to what is in the womb as a child, a precious little life. And the punishment given in verse 23, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. So to harm a pre-born child, clearly a crime here in Exodus 21. And this passage is stating the punishment should fit the crime. That's what life for life means. What was taken in her womb was a life made in the image of of God. And notice here, this was an unintentional killing. It was two men fighting, don't seem to be intending to hurt her or harm her or her preborn child. This was unintentional, an extreme act of negligence. Well, how much more serious is the intentional and deliberate taking of life in the womb? Clearly, what's in the womb is a life. God spoke to Moses, clearly pointing to the preborn child in the womb, describing and prescribing laws to protect that life. That life, in other words, taken in the womb, is worth protecting, worthy of being treated with dignity and honor and respect. Second conclusion, abortion is prohibited. Prohibited because these are persons. This will be a more brief one because I think it's fairly clear. Abortion is morally wrong. Where do we see that in the Bible? It violates the sixth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Abortion intentionally kills and ends the life 
of an innocent human being. That's what murder is, intentionally killing and ending the life of an innocent human being. You know, in our, in our Oakhurst Baptist Church statement of faith, the truth that the preborn are images, uh, image bearers of God, it's there clearly spelled out in our statement of faith. So I want to be clear, this is not a controversial issue here in our church. There's no controversy. I understand there's controversy in society, but there is not here amongst the members of this church. Our statement of faith, our last article states, we believe that children bear the image of God from the moment of conception and are a blessing and inheritance from the Lord. So I'm simply this morning, church member, repeating to you what you already know to be true and you already said that you believe. And it's good that we remind ourselves of that truth as we consider this issue. And it's important we remind ourselves and declare to our guests that are here this morning, we're so glad that you're here this morning, that we're all clear. The preborn are persons bearing the image of God, and therefore they must be protected. Final conclusion, third conclusion, this is how we think about protecting very practically. Our laws should prohibit abortion, period. Our laws should prohibit abortion. It's important to recognize justice and the law as it pertains to this issue. And so I want to focus the last part of our application on our perspective in light of even the, the changing landscape in our country of, a, of living post-Roe in a Dobbs world. How should Christians think about laws being changed? Certainly the work of being pro-life involves more than laws being changed. I'm so thankful to partner with our North Carolina Baptists who since the, the turn of the, the last century, the previous century, the late 1800s, has operated our Baptist children's homes here in North Carolina. If you drive up 85 and go through Thomasville, North Carolina, you'll see their headquarters right there. They've got orphanages. They've run all over the state. And not just for children. They have all sorts of places for adults, even with disabilities, that when we give to our cooperative program, it goes to fund those children homes. We, we had one of the directors come in here of Christian Adoptive Services, which is part of their adoption wing, be able to speak to us. One of our members here serves, I'll be happy to connect you with her, serves here with the Christian Adoptive Services. It's important for us to think there's lots of things we can do with pro-life, but while it involves more than just laws being changed, it's certainly not less than that. We must not overlook what must be done legally, and I say what must be done, and that's that the unjust laws of our state need to be changed to give full protection to the preborn under the law. There's private application you can make. There's corporate application we can make. There's public application that we should make. And the issue of abortion is necessarily tied to law and policy. I understand this issue can be politicized, but you can't separate it from policy. It necessarily is involved and tied to policy that Christians, we should pray and work towards justice publicly. Civil governments, we understand in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, have been given authority by God as His idea, His design, to protect life and to punish wrongdoers. That's what we see in Romans 13, 1 through 7, namely punishing those who take life. Civil governments are ordained by God to protect life. Again, governments, they do all sorts of 
different things. They, they take care of roads out in front of us and public utilities, all sorts of things that we benefit from as citizens. There's even lots of debate what government should or should not do. But there are some things we should be able to agree government must do. And Scripture from Romans 13, 1 through 7, I think directs that governments must protect the lives of its citizens. So as Christians, we care about individuals privately conforming, right? So even before there was an opportunity to engage the legislative process, kind of pre-Dobbs rather, uh, we cared about individuals and we would preach that way and instruct that way and disciple that way. But we also care and we should join with others to promote government and laws that are consistent with the most basic task that government has to protect its very citizens and their lives. We should continue to engage the process for laws to be changed where preborn children are treated justly and provided for, full protection under the law. Have you considered that the law speaks? It's not unimportant. The, the law does serve in our society, and it should serve to teach us what is good and what is, what is wrong. It doesn't mean that everything is legislated in society, but consider the law always speaks. It always teaches. God himself designed law. It's a way to restrain evil, a way to promote what is good. And the government necessarily will always have a hand in teaching society, though imperfectly, what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Now, what happened with the Dobbs decision did not make abortion illegal. Rather, the issue of abortion has been returned to you. It's been given back over to you. And it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time because we get to engage, finally, the legislative process. And we, the people, have a say in our representatives. We, the people, have a say in these laws. And I want to commend to you, we should be good stewards of the democracy God has given us. Hear me out, younger generation, because I understand sometimes we feel like we've got to speak to an older generation that we think got it wrong. And we need to be humble about that because there'll be a younger generation that comes and tells us we got it wrong. That's just the way things work. And maybe there, there are some who have too wrongly viewed America like Israel, that this is the promised land. And maybe there's a younger generation who says, well, no, it feels more like Babylon, that we're living in exile. And you can have those debates and we can hash those things out. But I think what we've got to work together for is to understand there are laws that promote good. We need to do what is just and what is right. We need to work together to be good stewards of this democracy God has given us. I have pastor friends in China. I have pastor friends in Russia, and their government does not care what they think. In fact, their government tells them, you can't say things in your churches without the threat of persecution and being thrown in prison. We don't have that situation by God's grace. And we should be good stewards of the democracy God has given us. The change in laws, we'll look at a little bit more of this tonight, just in some prayer requests that we'll have this evening. But the change of laws in July of 2023 in North Carolina basically changed the ban on abortion in our state from 20 weeks to 12 weeks, plus a requirement that patients make two separate trips to the abortion clinic at least 72 hours apart. Those laws changed by one vote. The, the governor's veto, who tried to stop this desperately, spoke out very strongly against these bans. Uh, they were overridden by one vote by a member who left the Democratic Party to become a Republican back last spring. One vote was all that it took to pass that law. The citizens, they will decide, together we will, 
who we send to Raleigh, and who we send to Washington. And that means we should think carefully about our role and the stewardship that we're given as we're able to have an impact in our political system. We should pray and seek to send lawmakers to D.C. and to Raleigh that will protect the lives of the preborn. In other words, Christian, all of life matters for bringing God glory. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. That also includes our ballots and what you do with the ballot box. It's important for us to think those, those issues matter greatly in promoting what is good and in protecting. We should pray. We should work. We should take courage in the Lord. We need to be people who think biblically and have our foundation in the Word of God. And let's do this joyfully, church. Let's be joyful. So sometimes you get off social media or you watch cable news and you are just mad at the world. That's not helping anybody. Certainly people live with you. It's not helping anyone. As Christians, we, we should be righteously angry over things that are wrong, but we also are called to be light and darkness where we joyfully and prophetically proclaim the truth of God and His Word to a watching world around us. And we do that humbly because we're the ones who've been forgiven and all by God's grace had our eyes open to see His grace, to love Him, to love His Word, and have a desire to follow Him. And it should be a privilege and an honor and a joy for us even to consider hard topics where we might face rejection and persecution, yet we can stand by God's grace to do what is right and to speak what is true. And everything we do here is connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the giver of life and all good things. We care about this issue that in a way that's different from any other American. We care as Christians. We care as those who long to bring God glory. We care as those who long to do what is good and what is right. We long to be those who extend a gospel of forgiveness and grace, welcoming others as we've been welcomed by Jesus Christ. We serve the one who rose from the dead on the third day. We preach a message of mercy and forgiveness of sins. We're empowered by the indwelling Spirit of God within us to live a life for His glory that honors Him and seeks to keep His commands. O Cursed Baptist Church, I plead with you, don't grow weary of this issue. Don't grow apathetic to this issue. Let's help one another humbly pray and work together for the glory of God. Let's bow and pray now. Father in heaven, we pray that we together would respond humbly and joyfully to your word. Lord, help us to consider the truth of your word. Help us to be men and women, boys and girls who think biblically, who are, are shaped by your word, who, who by your grace have been brought to submit to you and your son Jesus, Lord, that you would bring us into greater submission to your word, deeper obedience and more reverent worship in our lives, Lord. Help us to consider hard things in society, sometimes things that maybe we'd rather move on from or not say something about, Lord. Uh, give us wisdom and give us boldness and give us courage and give us joy, Lord, to represent you and your word. Well, we pray that you would work in our church to be those who would do good, who would spread the gospel, that you'd bring fruit in us and through us through what we heard here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.